1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, as David mentioned, we are in a series where we're looking at what it is to be a Christ-centered church. And tonight, we look at a very important passage which will talk to us about, highlight for us some divisions in the church and why that's happening and what we need to be careful of. And just as you find your way there, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we are conscious of our own sin. We are told in your word of our proneness to self-deception. And our prayer tonight is that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us great clarity to understand what your word says and how it applies in our lives. Help us not to make the same mistakes as the Corinthians and help us to live, uh, to glorify you in everything we do as a church. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is uh, from chapter 1 and verse 10 all the way through to the end of 4. You basically have a whole section where Paul is dealing with divisions in the church. He's already dealt in the last two chapters with this, this skewed understanding of what wisdom is. In Corinth, they thought wisdom was just like the world's wisdom. But what Paul has done is he has basically pulled that inside out to show them what cross-centered, Jesus-centered wisdom really is and how the church should then think and how the church should discern and what the church should then do. He's about to do the very same in these two chapters, three and four, in relation to church leadership, Christian leadership. So let's read this together. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I give you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, You're God's field, God's building. And by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, uh, wood, hay, or straw, His work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple 
and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. So do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise, by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Amen. This is God's word. When I was a teenager, I thought I was very grown up. Uh, I thought it was mature. Uh, I, uh, I had a Saturday job at one point. I was making some money. Um, I was taller than my mum. Uh, there, were, there were various things about my life that made me think, well, I'm quite mature. And generally what I did was I looked around at a lot of the kids around about my area and just thought, well, I'm older than them, so therefore I must be mature. Now, having that mindset led to me being immensely frustrated whenever I was treated like a child, uh, not like an adult. You know, what your mother used to say to you, you know, have you brushed your teeth? Have you washed behind your ears? I mean, who washes behind their ears? I'm joking, of course. Uh, you know, um, uh, I want you to phone me when you get there. I want you to be in by 10 and so on. And the number of times I, I, I would respond and just say, Why, when will you stop treating me like a child? Why don't you start treating me like an adult? And then that reply that came back, well, I'll treat you like an adult when you stop acting like a child. Some of you are laughing because you see it still. You see, it's... Uh, it's one of these phrases that parents use, and no doubt I will one day too. Um, there's a severe problem in Corinth in relation to maturity. They think there's something they're not. Uh, verses 1 to 4 are show, showing us this, aren't they? They think that they're spiritual, but actually Paul says you're, you're not spirit-like at all. You're worldly. You're like the world. Uh, they think they are grown up, that they are mature in their faith. But Paul says, you're still sucking your theological thumbs. You know, you're, you're in your nappies. Uh, I've been, I planted the church over 18 months. I left. It's been three years since I came back. I've come back. I've written you a couple of letters. This letter, from what I see of the reports that are coming back, you haven't grown a bit. And it's ridiculous. You're like a 20-year-old playing with Tonka trucks in a crash. It looks ridiculous. You have not grown as you think you have. Now, that's a really dangerous thing. Because in their immaturity, they're starting to use their immature discernment. They're making decisions about certain things, making judgments about certain things, including, as we've looked at in the last few weeks that we've been in 1 Corinthians, what wisdom is. And what performance is, what presentation is all about, and what counts. You know, we want someone who's going to come along with, with great wisdom and demonstrating real cleverness and a, and a real buzz about their presentation. But 
Paul has turned, flipped that upside down and said, no, 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 back to Christ. Christ is wisdom. Christ is power. And they're making the same error of judgment in relation to Christian leadership. You see what he says in verses 3 and 4? You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? What are they jealous about? And what are they quarreling over? Well, it says in verse 4, 4 tells us it was linked to 3. When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? You see what they're doing? They are putting their hope and their confidence and their trust in a man, in a teacher. And Paul is going to show them in this text, and I hope us tonight, how dangerous that actually is. Because fundamentally what they're doing is they are looking for something. And we'll see this as we loop around to the end of this text. They're actually looking for something that they already have by looking to these leaders, these people who could not provide the things that they already have anyway. That sounds a bit confusing, but let me loop around. It's an important question for us. I think it's an important question for us all in this age where we have access to so many different teachers, so many different leaders, whether you listen online to preachers or simply in a team ministry like this. Do you have a favorite pastor in Charlotte Chapel? I wonder if anyone ever has a sneaky wee look at the bulletin to see who's preaching before they decide if it's worth the trip. Thank you for coming out tonight, folks. (laughs) But it's a serious thing to consider because if that is the way you operate, if that's the way you think, we might be subtly starting to attach a level of importance to our leaders. And what Paul will tell us here is, you're running the risk of destroying the church. So serious it is. So this is what he does. He pulls this leadership thing inside out and he starts saying, okay, number one, this is, let me give you the true nature of gospel-centered leadership. This is what we see in verses 5 to 15. Uh, and he paints a couple of pictures for us. First of all, he puts us all in a field. Okay? Uh, he basically says to us that you're God's field. Uh, and provides an agricultural uh, analogy for us to tell us and show us that your leaders are simply and only servants of God. Verse 5, what after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants, he says. The Greek word there is diakonos, table waiters. To those who are putting their leaders on pedestals, Paul says, We, I, am a table waiter. And don't misunderstand Paul here. He's not denying the important work of leaders uh, that the Bible holds up for us. Far from it, actually. Uh, He's already shown us that every piece of service matters. He says, I planted, Apollos watered. Uh, What good is one without the other, you might ask? There's no point in having someone who's going to sow a seed in a field if there's no one going to be able to water it. There's no, no point in anyone going around watering a field when no one's actually planted seed in it in the first place. What's more, Paul reminds them, again attached to the importance of the work of a leader, is in verse 5, through them you come to believe. So in other words, these leaders are, according to God's plan, the divine scheme of things, they are vital. 
But this is what Paul is going to continue to repeat all the way through this text. But they are nothing compared to God himself. The work that they do is only possible because of three things, he says. That God has gifted them for this task. He has assigned them to this task. And actually, even in verse 6, God gives the growth. Even though faith may come through them, Paul's point is you're not supposed to put your faith in them. You're not supposed to hang your hopes on them as men and become so focused upon them that you actually lose sight of and potentially forget God himself. And that's the right thing to highlight, of course, for no one ever believes in God. No one ever grows in Christ-likeness because of the skills of a preacher. Only God has the power to transform lives. So he says a leader is only a servant. And he also says in this section, no leader is better than any other. Verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. So he's saying, you're pitting these guys. You're almost like putting them in a Premier League table of who you think is the the best, who can score the most points in terms of their, their power, their presence, their delivery, all of those kind of things. But these servants are on equal footing. They have, fair enough, they may have different tasks, as he has already pointed out. But they have the same purpose, as it says in verse 8, to work in God's field. It is only God who makes things grow. Only God who equips the leader, sends the leader, works through the leader. And it's only God who has anything to shout about then. We're never supposed to credit any kind of leader, as these guys were doing. For life change or growth into Christ, as something that these guys have given them, God has given it to them. Similarly for us, if you find that you have grown in your faith in any form or come to faith at some point through the teaching of the word in this church whether it's through Christianity Explored or through pulpit ministry or whatever uh, give God the glory but it's God who has brought about that change that work without him and his divine empowerment then we would our ministry would be a total failure and Paul brings them round to thinking through that all of this to say how consider how utterly foolish it is then to divide over your leaders he is paul is magnifying the limitations of his leaders here in order to direct their attention to god alone so that their boast might not be i follow paul i follow apollos but it might be i follow christ i belong to him I think it's true that the members of the church at Corinth have just taken their eyes off God. They have restricted themselves to one leader. But not only that, to the exclusion of others. And it's all been based on pride and personal preference. They have effectively idolized one. And therefore cut themselves off from the others that God had sent. Through whom he would pour out more grace into their lives. But by making Apollos or Cephas their favorite, they cut themselves off. 
Now, if every leader is on the same side, working for the same God, with the same purpose in mind, and if every leader is entirely dependent on God for effectiveness in their field of ministry, then what is the point of dividing God's church over them? To treat leaders as anything like rulers or rallying points, I think is proof that you might just be looking to men to provide what you already have in God and actually proof that you may not have fully grasped the gospel. It's Don Carson who says Christian leaders are only servants of God and are not to be accorded allegiance that is reserved for God alone. So instead of identifying with a certain leader to the exclusion of all other leaders, our encouragement should be to receive all these leaders as gifts from God. And that way you get the full helping of grace that God intends for you to receive. And I think for us, I think there is a danger in terms of of team ministry for people to have their favorites. But do you realize that to identify with Paul Rees to the exclusion of Andy Prime or myself as a means of grace in our life. We can incorporate the elders in this that we will cut ourselves off from God's grace as he seeks to provide it for us. To compare leaders is effectively to divide the church and to make much of men instead of making much of God. Uh, So please don't compare us Um, maybe you don't know how liberating that is for preachers to know that they are not being compared because in our most weakest moments this jealousy uh, can exist between members of a team can exist between leaders if we do not fail to apply the truth of the gospel to our very lives ourselves but it's a liberating thing to know that oh God has gifted me for this task God has assigned me to this field. Uh, God is enabling me uh, and working even through my weakness to bring about change and do his work in this field. That's a liberating thing for preachers. And I think this is why Paul takes us then from the farm, after pointing out that we are servants, to the building site to, to tell us in verses 10 to 15 that your leaders are judged by God. So don't hold your leaders up on any kind of pedestal because they are mere servants of God and to be judged by God. Now this is an architectural analogy. Uh, The Corinthians weren't just being worldly and immature in the way they overexalted their their leaders but also in the way that they actually uh, appraised their work. They thought that at this point their newer leaders were better than Paul who had focused far too much on Jesus Christ and far too much on the cross, something that they associated with spiritual infancy, with the beginnings of the faith. But they had kind of moved on from that to newer and better things. And these newer leaders were seemingly drawing crowds with their sophisticated speech and their clever wisdom. So Paul, I think, introduces this analogy of the building at the end of verse 9 and through 10 to 15 to help the Corinthians see, again, 
that they have taken their eyes off God and moved away from this very thing that he has made central, that is, the gospel. So he says in verses 10 and 11, look, the church is founded on this gospel. And similar to the first analogy, God is the owner of, a, let's say, the building site. Uh, he is building a people who will be his treasured possession, who will display his glory to the nations. And the builders in this scenario, in verses 10 to 15, are leaders. And look at what he says in verse 10. Here we read that Paul is an expert builder. And the Greek word in there is that he is sophos. He is a wise builder. Oh, they would know what that meant in Corinth. He's saying, I'm the wise builder because I've laid the best foundation. That is, as it says in verse 11, Jesus Christ. The foundation for any church is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, if I'm a wise builder and the gospel foundation that I have set is right, what does it make these leaders that you're running after who seek to build not on this foundation, but who seem to be kind of just taking a few sidesteps and building something slightly over here? The answer we'd be looking for in the 21st century is, Cowboys. I'm not talking about hats and boots with spurs and that kind of thing. I'm talking about cowboys, cowboy traders, those who cut corners, those who build with shoddy materials that will not stand the test of time. They can build stuff that might look good to start with, but one day, yeah, we know one day you're going to find out just how shoddy that work has been. Uh, I live in the house in St. Andrews uh, when I pastored the church up there, and uh, my office was up the stairs in that house and the floorboards upstairs were always feeling a little bit wonky and uh, it, it wasn't until there was it was an extension so some guys had come in they'd done the extension they'd laid the floor and da 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 and then it wasn't until there was a little bit of work needed done and we peeled back the carpets to realize that these builders had used roofing planks for floorboards uh, that's not good for those of you who have no idea about what it is to lay a floor that's really bad uh, really, really bad. And it was just shoddy, shoddy work. And I think in the same way, Paul is trying to highlight for us that the leaders in God's church must be very, very careful how they build. Even if their leadership is gathering a crowd, even if they're smooth in their speech, if they are not building with materials that are consistent with the quality of the foundation that has been laid in Jesus Christ, they will, as he says here, suffer loss. Loss. Because the day, capital D, day, that is the day of judgment, will bring it to light. That is why in verse 10 you have this warning. Be careful how you build. Leaders will be judged on the materials they build with. That's what 12 to 15 goes on to say. Verse 12 tells us that builders will use gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. His work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. The fire will test the quality of each man's work. God will consume the cheap rubbish and only those materials, as I said, consistent with the foundation will survive. They will suffer loss, but they will be saved, as verse 15 says. Some of these leaders, he himself will be saved, but only as escaping as one through the flames. 
I, I don't know if you saw the fireworks display from Pentland Community Centre up in Oxgangs. <laughs> Were you at that one, Phil? Were you? <laughs> uh, that was quite a fire. So the fireworks display, and one of the fireworks just apparently ricocheted and uh, launched into the whole box of fireworks, and everything went up. And as I was watching this on BBC News, uh, it was a huge explosion, and I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm so glad that Noah was in there. And just as I was thinking, this, this little figure just appeared, you know, running out. <laughs> and I just thought, there, there's my sermon illustration for Sunday. There is one who is escaping from the flames. He just made it out. Just made it out. Or else he may have suffered severe burns and potentially even death. That was a dangerous situation to be in. So it is for leaders who do not build with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who do not build with materials that are consistent with the very foundation that has been laid by the apostles. And I think this is a message for us as pastors and for the elders of Charlotte Chapel. We are all fellow elders. Uh, consider how you build, brothers. Uh, consider how you lead. Will it stand the test on that capital D day? Uh, will that day bring to light that you have preferred worldly things and worldly wisdom to gospel things as a means of building his church? Because we will be called to account for how we pastor Charlotte Chapel. Uh, I, I'm, encouraged. I'm encouraged to see us working hard to keep the gospel at the heart of everything we do. Uh, but we must always work hard to keep this central. And we must never assume that the gospel is central in everything we do. We must always check. And we must always take care. Be careful then how you build. I think it's particularly important for us because it's a sobering thing to see what is going on in other churches across this nation, in churches whose leaders have lost the grip on the gospel, whose churches are being built on something else that is not fully and fundamentally the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not be presumptuous, but focused and careful to keep the main thing the main thing so that a reward on that day will not be, whew, you just made it there, didn't you? but will be well done, good and faithful servant. I come and share my joy. All of this to say to these Corinthians who are lifting up their leaders and making much of them, all the while forgetting about God and all the while ignorant of the fact that their favoritism, that they're running after saying, oh, I belong to this guy, I belong to this guy, is dividing the church. Paul says, these guys are just servants, and they're going to be judged by God. So don't think of them any higher than you should. He's not, he's not ignoring the fact that the Bible also teaches that you should give honor, but don't follow them. Don't hang your hopes on them. You'll be disappointed time and time again. Don't boast in men as they were doing. Only servants, only to be judged by God, the only one who knows the true quality of the work. We should just boast in him. I think this is why he gives us three, three warnings for those 
uh, for all of us, really, for members. Uh, in verses 16 to 23, look with me. First of all, do not be ignorant. This will destroy the church. Uh, Paul, verse 16, asks, don't you know that you are God's temple? And now we're getting a glimpse of the kind of thing that he's been thinking about that would be, that's been built. And that God's spirit lives in you. So God's, God lives in his people by his spirit, uniting them to one another by their common faith in Christ crucified, cemented together by his love, built up into a superstructure that blazes for his glory. That's the church. Do you understand that? Do you know that's what he's doing? I ask that because if you don't, you will never comprehend the seriousness of dividing a church. You will never comprehend the fact that you will be pitting yourself against God who has said through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I will build my church. God considers his church to be so important and he will love it and he will protect it even if it means he will be against you. If the cross does not regulate our understanding of the church and church leadership, then we will not be builders as we should be. We will all be demolition men. We'll be picking up our wrecking balls and just taking, swinging at this thing that God is trying to build. There are lots of ways to destroy a church. Heresy will do it. Heresy will do it really quickly. So teach something that is so overtly obvious that it's not the gospel. That'll do it. But decentralizing the cross in any area of a church's ministry, even in leadership, well, that will also do it. It might do it more slowly, but it will destroy it. Brothers and sisters, churches will come crashing down when members do not take care to follow true gospel men and where leaders are not careful to build with genuine gospel parts. Do not be ignorant. You will destroy the church. If anyone destroys God's temple, it says in verse 17, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Second thing he says, do not be deceived. All of this, this thinking, this fighting, this jealousy, this quarreling over leaders like Apollos and Cephas and so on, it's foolishness. Don't be deceived, verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. As I said at the start, they thought they were wise, mature, spiritual. But Paul has exposed their immaturity and their foolishness. The, the reference to Job 5 is helpful. He's caught, God has caught them out. And his appeal for them again is to pull their thinking inside out and come back to the cross. Don't be deceived. This is foolish thinking. Thirdly and finally, do not be boastful. All things are yours. Verse 21, so then, as he brings all of this to a close, so then, no more boasting about men. Rather than claiming any kind of allegiance to any leader, Stating their party preferences. I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas. These guys should have been rejoicing in the fact that they belong to God. Same as their leaders. Who are accountable to God. And I think he's, Paul is trying to point out the utter stupidity. 
of praising and running after and glorying in a leader to the exclusion of other leaders that God has sent to pour out grace into a congregation's life. By saying you're looking for something you already have, by looking to someone who could never provide it. It's pointless. I belong to God should have been their slogan. So then no more boasting about men, for all things are yours. What? (laughs) Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, see what he's doing? He's just turning this right around. They're all saying, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. Oh, I belong to Cephas. Paul's turning around and saying to them in the gospel, Paul, Cephas, Apollos belongs to you. But he doesn't just stop there. He broadens his list, taking in some of, actually, some of the greatest philosophical spheres of life. Some of the things that really can, we can get hang-ups about these things. Things that can, if you like, tyrannize or oppress us. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, life, death, present, future, all are yours. Wow. Why are you trying to attach yourself to certain leaders when God has already made and God has already given you everything you need in Christ Jesus? The world will try to squeeze us into its mold. It ties us down. But in the gospel, we are given the world in Christ. It is ours insofar as we are in Christ. Take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. And so have we if we are in him. Life in itself can tyrannize us. We've been thinking about that even in our Ecclesiastes series. We can cling to it. We can forget that the Bible calls it a vapor. We live life as if this is all there is and that eternity has no reality to it. But the gospel transforms our view of life. Life belongs to us. We're not to be ruled by it or tyrannized by it. Then there's death. Death is probably one of the biggest tormentors in this life. We fear it. Some people do things to their bodies to try and prevent it or at least cover up the effects of it. But the gospel transforms that. Death no longer has that mastery over us. According to Paul's phrases here, death belongs to us. If you're in Christ, do you understand that death can only make you better? For non-Christians, death is the end of life. But for believers, death is the beginning of joy, the fulfillment of love. Death used to be an executioner. But the gospel makes him a mere usher, taking us into the very presence of God. It's the same with the present, same with the future. These are inescapable tyrannies that bind us. But in Christ, these tyrannies have been utterly transformed by the gospel. How? Only because Christ was crucified. And only because we have put our faith in him. That's what it means to keep the gospel central. When we keep on returning to that, Christ crucified, Christ crucified. We are gods, and that transforms 
everything. So, no more boasting in men. No more favorite pastors or elders. No more favorite leaders and preachers and a partisan thing emerging. Because we might just subtly start to divide this church, you know. And this church in God's eyes is sacred. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. So, no more boasting in men. Boast only in what? Christ crucified. Let's bow our heads.